e koroma, e kuima, e homa. Tēnā koutou, ki a koutou katoa. E te rakatira o kaitahu, Ethel, ka nui te taku harikoa ki te kite i a koe anō. And the reason for that, uh, those mihi really are just to greet and welcome all of you to start with, but particularly for me to uh, welcome uh, or to have the opportunity and say to Athol that it's an honour to actually be able to question him in a very different uh, sense and in a different setting uh, than the last occasion on which I had to question Dr Athol Anderson which was some 20-odd years ago when he was uh, <coughs> the lead historian of four rather eminent historians uh, who Naitahu were relying on in a three-and-a-half-year Waitangi Tribunal inquiry process about Tatoihu, the top of the south and the north of the South Island. And there was a particular dispute on each coastline at the top of the south, but particularly for my clients, I was a barrister at the time, uh, Natiapa Kitaratora, a small iwi, with interests on the west coast and an interest across the top of the south. Uh, and they <coughs> were making claims that they had, and the dispute between Naitahu and uh, Natiapa on the west coast was over a stretch of territory as to who had the customary occupancy rights uh, in respect of the area between Kawatiri, which is the Bulla River at uh, Westport, and uh, Kaharangi Point, which is a point, for those of you who aren't familiar with that part of the northern west coast, just south of uh, the West Whanganui Inlet and north of Karamea. And uh, for the purpose, uh, because I knew that I was having to uh, take on this terrible task of cross-examining someone who, with as uh, uh, great a reputation as Athol had at that time, I took on myself to uh, ensure that I knew the country uh, that we were to be discussing. So Margie and I took a trip uh, one summer down uh, over to, so you go to Golden Bay, drive over to the west coast, then you turn south and you head down until the road stops at a river called the Turamui River. And then we took out our packs out of the vehicles, hopped on mountain bikes and we biked down the beaches not knowing uh, what the conditions were like until we got to Kaharangi. And it turned out the conditions were very gentle and you passed uh, a Kumara pit uh, or Coomera Garden area that I'd seen and, and or seen photographs of and had heard about and read about uh, and which denoted obviously a, a place of occupation just immediately north, a couple of hours travel north of Kaharangi Point. You get to Kaharangi Point and you leave your bikes there and then you have to walk by foot, get around to the Kaharangi River and from there on it is just tiger country in the bush country uh, for those of you who are familiar with kiakia, the kiakia plant, uh, which entwines itself and becomes an impenetrable mass, uh, the usual methods of travel through the bush on ridgelines, etc., was ruled out. Trying to travel by the coast, as Brunner found in 1846 when he was taken down there by his Māori guide, Kihu, it took 14 days uh, for them to go from there down past the Kawatiri. So, equipped with that knowledge, and believing that the man who I was having to cross-examine, who I'd, it was pre-Google, so you couldn't find out, but all I knew from various books was that there was this white-haired man who uh, was, I thought, an ivory tower professor uh, stuck in some scholastic world uh, who was highly unlikely to have done what I'd done or highly unlikely to have seen the country up in that area because I knew that he came from Otago. I knew that at the time that I was cross-examining, he was a professor in Australia, and I thought this was going to be a real big coup for Nati Upper. <laughs> so uh, I can remember, the, the, you may not recall, but I remember standing up totally confident and saying to you, Dr Anderson, have you ever walked the beaches north of Kaharangi Point? And you said, no. Have you ever visited them? No. So I was winning. And, uh, <laughs> and have you looked at or ever seen the country south of Kaharangi Point? And he said to me, Oh, well, I was a school teacher at Karamea for two years and I was a keen deer stalker. It's <laughs> 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 like a, you know, it was like the other side getting the winning try, you know. It was Anderson 5 0 at that stage. And, uh, and so I, I 
tried not to show it and carried on and said, but have you, have you recently read Bronner's diaries? And he said, well, I've read them in the past. And uh, have, do you have any idea how long it took him to go from Gaurangi Point down to the Kawateri before he first met some Naitahu encampments just an hour or so south of uh, the Kawateri? And he said, no, but I'm sure you're about to tell me, Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> Seven nil to Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the score was that good. <laughs> I was uh, appearing for Naitahu and uh, we didn't really win that one. <laughs> well, yeah. it's just delightful to yeah. have met him 20-odd years later, found out that I was not, not only <laughs> proven me so wrong on that occasion, but to come along here to this book festival uh, and to hear him describe his first archaeological dig at Utter Island, south of the uh, Tokotafu uh, group. And what a, an amazing tale of fortitude for two young blokes, a geologist and archaeologist, to be landed on an island with, with, which had no water, lose most of their water and trying to land, lose most of their gear and live there for three weeks, no radio operating. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, that sort of gives you a picture. Those two little tales give you a picture of a very well-rounded man. And uh, one of the other things that, by way of introduction, uh, I just want to quickly run through is just the uh, bewildering task of trying to speak to someone like Ethel Anderson in, in 45 minutes and from in a, in a second he'll be the one doing all the talking. Uh, but if I can just quickly run through a list of things that I noted as I read this massive tome uh, that's very engaging and very well written. Uh, but of the research papers that Athol, in the field that he's had to cover uh, in his daily work, has had to cover, and if I just quickly run through some headings that I noted down, that he, he reads detailed research papers to equip himself to be able to apply aspects of those in terms of his own research and his own conclusions. Climatology, geography, botany, medicine, anthropology, uh, paleodemography, cosmology, whakapapa, uh, Biraco, uh, navigation, Fakairo, carvings, um, uh, Pacific decorations, etc. Languages, language derivations, Tahitic, Melanesian, Maori, and the like. And of course, the great recent aid, uh, mitochondrial DNA and genetics. And there are probably some that I've missed there, but even just giving you that little outline, I think, will give you an appreciation as well as those two tales of what a well rounded fellow uh, is sitting before you and with an extraordinarily capable mind uh, and w hopefully in the course of the next 40 minutes we'll be able to demonstrate that to you. So Ethel, given that, that list of uh, um, fields of endeavour that you have to equip yourself with, uh, you obviously had to do that right from the start really in terms of your archaeological experience and mm. I wonder if you could start off by telling us where that commenced and the fields and the areas where you've uh, operated. Uh, well, as you, as you said, I was a school teacher in Karamea in the district high school for two years. In fact, in the district high school, there was sort of instant promotion. I was deputy headmaster in my first week. <laughs> 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 and also deputy civil, what do they call it, civil emergency or... Uh, <laughs> for, for Northern Buller, at any rate. Oh. Uh, the policeman was the head, head um, man for civil defence and, so and, uh, and I was the deputy. Neither of us had any idea what we were supposed to do in an emergency, but <laughs> that didn't really matter. No, I really enjoyed uh, Karamea. It was a great place to teach, but I, by the end of the second year, I knew that I didn't really want to um, remain a teacher for the rest of my life because I had other interests that I wanted to pursue and um, the most important or most pressing of them was Archaeology. So I went to University of Otago. I already had a an MA in geography, and I went to Otago, and they said, "Well, you can start at stage three and do an MA in anthropology." So um, that was another three years. And during that time, I worked mainly in um, Palliser Bay, uh, on the southern end of the North Island, and various other places in New Zealand. Then I went to um, Cambridge to do a PhD, and I worked first of all in southern France which I found very interesting, particularly as I didn't speak much French. And uh, <laughs> a few adventures there. And um, then uh, I did my... That was working with um, some uh, fellow students of mine. And then um, I set my own 
topic in um, northern Sweden, uh, if, you, if you know it, the provinces of Jämtland and Lapland. And uh, over three years, I wrote a PhD on economic change from the Mesolithic through to the Iron Age in that area. Uh, and loved it. I just loved um, the, the forest and the tundra and so on of, of uh, northern Sweden. It was a wonderful place. Came back to New Zealand with a newly minted um, PhD in, in essentially northern European archaeology or Arctic archaeology and, um, as Ron said, was therefore somewhat ill-equipped <laughs> to go on the first trip to Arta in uh, 1977. I did some more work in, in New Zealand, particularly in the, in the south, and then went to um, the ANU uh, as Professor of Prehistory in the um, School of Advance, in the um, Institute of Advanced Studies there, which meant that I had PhD students, but I didn't have to do any teaching, and that was a wonderful thing. Fifteen years of being able to travel around the Pacific and Indian Oceans doing research on islands all the way from the Galapagos out to the east across to Madagascar in the west and uh, many places in between. So um, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Thank you. And uh, it's obvious from, <coughs> I know from personal experience and uh, again that uh, you were involved in a, um, a writing or editing of some major historical works uh, early on in your career and you mm. uh, wrote in that field for quite some time. I did. I was interested in history and I should have gone on in history. I think I went on in geography only because I was, um, what was it called, indentured or whatever. I was an indentured labourer for the education department. <laughs> right. I forget what they call them. And that got you up to Karamea. That, that's yeah. why I had to go teaching when, for some years when I'd, um, when I'd finished. But I should have really gone on in history because I enjoyed history tremendously and um, I think I, I learnt more about history in the stage two year in, in, at Canterbury University when uh, I did a course in or paper in uh, Renaissance and Reformation under the renowned Professor N.C. Phillips, whom some of you might know or might have known. That would have been, um, stage two would have been for me, 1963. Um, he was a remarkable man, a very stern man. He'd been a, a major in the um, Royal Artillery in the Second World War, fought in the Western Desert and in, in Italy, been mentioned in dispatches and so on. And um, he didn't have much tolerance for what he regarded as um, long-haired, scruffy um, students. And when we filed into his first tutorial, dressed in the customary uniform in those days with brothel creepers, which were sort of ripple-soled desert boots, um, scruffy jeans, and very sort of long and often holy woolen jerseys, which everybody wore in New Zealand in those days. And he looked at us rather gloomily as we filed in. And his first words to us were, in my tutorials, Men will wear a jacket and tie, and women a dress. <laughs> and nobody dared to contradict him. But um, he was a great historian, and he, he was wonderful because he taught from the original documents. And this was no easy feat in those days. Um, before we had um, access to photocopiers. There were no photocopiers, in fact, in 1963. You had those old Gestetner things, some of you will remember, mimeograph things, where you had to type everything onto it, and then you wound it round a sort of inked drum, and it produced pages. Well, he had had that done, and, he'd, uh, and he had made up a book that had the original text of speeches or papers or letters... Um, or extracts from books from all the, the great figures, Leo X, Raphael, Leonardo, Michelangelo, um, Savonarola, Mac Machiavelli, Sir Thomas More, Erasmus, etc. And that was what he taught us from. So he made us read these things and discuss them and critique them. And I think that was probably the best lesson I ever learnt in history or indeed in scholarship, that, or indeed you would learn in law. Mm. Go back to the evidence. 
and start with the evidence. So um, after that, 1978, um, I came back to Otago University and became involved in the Naitahu claim or Naitahu business because of I have some Naitahu ancestry in that area in Muihiku. 1988, the um, Naitahu claim, um, I ran the one of the big um, planks of the claim, which was the um, Wahi, not Wahitapu, ma the Mahikai claim, the, the places where people made food, all the little camping sites and everything within the Naitahu district. That was quite a big claim. And out of that, I started writing bits of um, mainly Naitahu history to Pohos Raid, which um, Ron has got there, was one of the first. Um, I wrote a book for, Cam uh, for Cambridge University Press on moas and moa hunting, which contained quite a bit of history in it as well. Um, the Welcome of Strangers, some of you might have seen Targa University Press, Traditional Lifeways of Southern Māori, which I gave a copy to Ron of the other day. Um, the Naitahu History, that was, that it was edited by myself and Tamari Tau, and so on, all of it leading on ultimately to Tangata Whenua. Te uh, last raid, uh, particularly uh, I had mentioned to Ethel when we had a quick discussion last week that um, it uh, was one of a number of uh, factors that made me uh, very interested and, and in fact led to me writing The Musket Wars and I, mm. I wondered uh, whether that's in, still in print or still no, available? No, it's long out of print I'm Is afraid, it? yes. Mm. You, should you should press and, and New Zealanders generally or certainly South Islanders should find out about a raid by a man who went from Mohua, Golden Bay all the way down the west coast with about 60 odd um, of his people and uh, ended up at Tutoro just literally 50 or 60 k's from Bluff yep. and uh, was killed himself, Te uh, His uh, balance were taken by Naito to Ruapuki Island and, and one chap and one chap alone, on his own, got all the way back with the bad news, back to Mohu, back to Golden Bay. It's the most gripping tale, very well written, and, um, uh, and it in always intrigued me that you seem to have written almost as much history as you have archaeology. Or Not quite, but... Not quite? No, no right. Um, <laughs> and it, obviously, in terms of uh, your archaeology, uh, Māori ancestry and... Um, East Polynesian languages and uh, those sorts of issues, mythology, would uh, have been important to you? Yes. Well, when you're working on, uh, as we were in Tangata Whenua, in my section, which, by the way, these, um, this here is the, my chapter's bound as a single part. It's about a third of the entire book, and there's both the entire book over there and, uh, and copies of this as well. So I just use this um, in normal course of events. In short, don't don't go buying both of them. You don't should. buy both of them. No, and it, right. it's actually cheaper to buy the the main book. But if your interest is primarily in the archaeology and you don't want to buy the main book, well then, well, you know, you get the idea. And then if you really, if you're a real Scot, you can buy the little wee version. <laughs> that contains the first two chapters of this one. <laughs> I'm not going to read much out of, out of um, Tangata Whenua because it, it's not the sort of book which lends itself uh, to that kind of thing. But um, there are just a few passages where it's easier to read than to try and describe them. And um, yes, the, all of the things that you need to look at when you're trying to figure out where people have gone, which, from which island and to where and when and, and how and all of the other questions that you want to know, um, and when you're trying to figure out, well, where do Maori fit into the general picture of Polynesians, um, there are, there's a lot of evidence that comes from language, from the dialects of the Polynesian language, or in ca some cases, full languages, but mostly they're dialectical differences, um, which tell you um, where there are similarities and differences. For example, in um, New Zealand, in the, when, we ha when we have this... This, uh, these dual words, tuakana-tana, meaning older and younger, for siblings of the same sex, tuakana or tana. You can say taina, which is common in New Zealand, but you can also say tana. T but in the Pacific, in Polynesia, tana is, is the word only in 
the region dominated by Tahiti. So that's a good indication that although most people in East Polynesia would be saying Taina, that Maori had some ancestral connection with Tahiti. And mythology is another one, and let me just read you a little passage here. In the Society Islands, there is a myth about the killing of a dangerous shark called Aifa'aru'ai, my Tahitian are not very good, which lived in the Parapara Channel near Motu'ea Islet off the coast of Tahar Island beside another islet called Ta'a'a. Now, if you put the consonants which they drop in, in Tahitian, if you put them back in and create essentially Maori, what you find is that in Golden Bay, there's an old piece of mythology there which says, in Golden Bay, or Te Aoriri, a Tanafa, supernatural creature, with the name Kaifakaruaki, which is exactly the same as Aifaaruaai, lived in the Parapara River and attacked travellers from Motueka and Takaka. In other words, all the same words, all in the same context, within an almost exactly the same story, have been transplanted from Tahiti to Golden Bay. So there are a number of instances of that kind of thing, the names of mountains and the way in which they cluster, Auraki and other mountains around it. That cluster, you can find it actually in Rarotonga and also in Tahiti. So that, that's one set of evidence which gives you some clues as to where people originated. Right. And that consistency between uh, <coughs> what we might call uh, Puraco or, or mythology mm. and uh, uh, that consistency between the uh, customary source and the scientific research that you've done, you've found has, in general terms, been uh, increasingly able to be linked. It's certainly between traditions. Uh, we've had a... We've had a um, an unfortunate history of dealing with Maori tradition in New Zealand. Um, many of the earliest people, many of the earliest scholars, European scholars, I mean, who came to New Zealand, were much better at understanding Maori tradition than, than most of the later scholars from the late 19th century and through the early 20th century because they were doing what N.C. Phillips was teaching us to do and what lawyers do. They went straight to the evidence. They weren't reading just what somebody thought they'd heard or some Maori had told them last week or whatever. They went to the oldest kind of evidence. Edward Shortland, for example, he was convinced, and he was a fluent in Maori, and um, he had a job going around investigating Maori claims. This is in the, in the 18, early 1840s. And the only way he could see to do it was to go back through the whakapapa and the traditions as to what pe why people claimed they owned this bit of land but not that one or how the disputes arose. And what he did was look at the whakapapas, get them, ask the senior men, men in each village to write down their whakapapa, and then he would take that whakapapa to a place where there, it was disputed and say to them, do you dispute this whakapapa? And most of, the case, most of the time they would say, no, we don't. And then he, he decided, well, if it's true amongst a small, relatively small area, is it true on a larger scale? So he took... Whakapapa from Tauranga and the Thames area and he went over and that's in an area dominated by um, the Arawa Federation of Iwi and he took them over the hills to Waikato who were their, the Tainui, you know, who were often their bitter enemies and he said, here is what they tell me in Tauranga do you agree to this? and they said yes apart from our recent ancestors all those older ancestors that's their all back to their canoe, and these ones are all back to ours. So he found that effectively he was dealing with history. Tradition was history. Those, those whakapapa were telling you a line of people, one after the other, from the canoes that first arrived in New Zealand right up until the time when the, the contemporary period. And um, I pulled out a few little pieces here. Make sure I get the page right. Oh, and one of the other ways of um, looking to see whether what Maori was saying had some historical basis rather than sort of mythological basis, which was often distinguished as being unreliable, though it's not necessarily so. 
were things that they believed. And here is the, the issue about Hawaiki. Where was Hawaiki? Most Maori and Moriori traditions and most East Polynesian traditions generally refer to migration from Hawaiki, but what did they mean? In New Zealand, Hawaiki was conceived as lying in two different directions. It was the celestial destination lying towards the sunset to the west or northwest, to which Maori and Moriori returned after death. You'll know the story, the Tiaratapu, the sacred trail, goes up to Cape Ringa and people disappear from there, the spirits disappear from there out to the northwest. But Hawaiki was also the land from which Maori and Moriori originated, peopled by the immediate ancestors of the canoe crews, a place about which many stories were told, especially about the family and clan troubles that led to migration. Hawaiki, as the origin of migration, was pointed out as lying to the east or northeast of New Zealand, so one to the northwest and one to the northeast. The difference in direction, however, is readily explicable. The key concept of Hawaiki is ancestry, which in death resides in the west. When you die, you go to the west. But in tradition resided to the east because that's where the canoes came from. And you can see, I better read this rather than confuse myself by trying to explain it elsewise. Um, in most of East Polynesia, both the spirit world and the source of migration lie to the west. So Hawaiki is a single area. You came, you came from the west to Tonga, to uh, Tahiti, and when you die, your spirit goes back to the west. Hawaiki is one place. In New Zealand, however, uh, New Zealand, however, lies to the west of the migration point in East Polynesia. So all of East Polynesia, New Zealand lies west of all of East Polynesia, if you can think in your mind. And so when you, when you die, yes, you go to the west, but if you're coming from East Polynesia to New Zealand, you have of necessity to come from the east. So... <clears throat> Um, this contains, as I say here, an important implication, which is that Māori and Moriori made a clear distinction between historical and supernatural processes. They could talk about both, they could hold both in their mind, but when they wanted to tell you about history, they could tell you about history divorced from other mythological and other kinds of concepts. And I think that's one of the important things that we emphasise in the book, certainly in some of my chapters, that um, uh, Māori scholarship w was in a way no less subtle and no less agile than those of the Europeans who were interrogating them. They could understand in the same sort of scholarly way the difference between what might be imaginary and what they believed to be, have, have appeared, uh, have happened in real time. And Whakapapa evidence, uh, too, provides consistency. And, uh, and Whakapapa evidence does in, indeed <coughs> provide consistency. I um, did a, a test of this. It wasn't a perfect test, but it was as good as I could get. I, I, got, um, I assembled 191 Whakapapa from all of the main, all the main canoe districts, like the Altea, the... Um, Takatimu, the Tainu, the Arawa, Kurahopu, etc. So I had a good broad range. And I only chose Whakapapa where there was a line running from an ancestor who was claimed to have been on, in the crew of a migration canoe up to another ancestor who was still alive in the early 19th century. Generally somebody who was actually still alive, although quite elderly at around 1850. And um, then I counted the number of generations. And then you have to multiply it by the generational length. Now, many people think, well, you know, Maori, they, sometimes they marry young, so maybe a generational length could be 15 or 18 years. But actually, that's not the way you count a generational length. You count it by the um, mean age of parturition um, for women and the mean age of of paternity for males over the full family. And when you do that, you find that 
for nearly all peoples in the world, but certainly all peoples who live in, in an agricultural existence, the length of a generation is almost exactly 30 years. So 30 years times the generations that are in the whakapapa, and, and then if you look at the midpoint of those, it comes out at 1280 AD, which is, as it happens, the same age as Wairau Ba. So, um, and most of the most of the other most of the Whakapapa cluster around that that midpoint. So you can see that, in that sense too, Whakapapa were historical. They had to be, after all, because Whakapapa were the basis of your existence. You know what you owned, how you were related to people, and so on, depended on Whakapapa. So at a minimum, at least your in-laws had to agree that your Whakapapa was right if not more widely. So I think um, the point about history, Maori scholarship being also history in, in a perfectly academic sense that we would understand of European history um, is a point that we make quite strongly. I'm hopeless at maths. Uh, how many, uh, on average, how many generations? Uh, I think it was we, uh, 21. 21. Uh, the reason yeah. I ask is mm. that this morning I uh, uh, was looking at some notes that uh, my father-in-law uh, left me on the, the night he died at our house, actually, back oh. in 1980. And, mm. uh, and there, right on page one, which I'd overlooked, and uh, probably because, and, but uh, he had a note, uh, Coupe, uh, with the arrows down to Manga, 22 to 23 generations. Yep. So, uh, that's, interesting. that's right on the money, because Coupe... Although in the old stories that we got from Alison Best and Percy Smith and so on, Coupe was said to have arrived at, what, 1150, wasn't it? Something like that. Right. You know, 950 and 1150 and 1350, the Great Fleet, etc. that we were taught at school. But in fact, if you go to the Whakapapa, you see that Coupe is never more than a couple of generations earlier than the, early, than the um, earliest canoes. And in fact, some canoes, particularly from Northland, claim him as one of their crew members that he had, he had come to New Zealand, gone home to Hawaii, and then come back in a migration canoe. Um, so, yeah, it fits together very neatly. And how does that fit together in terms of the, uh, what you term the paleoecology and the uh, archaeology of uh, areas like Wairoba and the like? Well, there's been a lot of work done on the archaeology of the of the very early settlements in New Zealand. I've done some of it, but but many others have have worked on it as well. And uh, what we find is that when when you look at the the very early sites, and and how do you know it's very early? Well, uh, m we know that moa hunting occupied a fairly narrow period of time at the beginning of human settlement in New Zealand. That that. The youngest moa bones that have ever been found are dated to about 1450, but um, in most moa hunting sites, you can they where you're getting a lot of moa bone, they're generally not much younger than about 1350, 1380. So you've only got that very narrow um, span, maybe a hundred years or so, which we would call the archaic or very early period of of um, human existence in New Zealand, and. The radiocarbon dates, as I say, that's what they fall into from 1280 to about 1380 for that period. Um, we have other ways of trying to um, cross-check that uh, chronology. Rat dates seemed like a very good idea at one time because rats, you know, they came with, with people to New Zealand in the, presumably in the first canoes. They breed quickly, so they spread widely. So if you take... Um, rat bones from the bottom of either archaeological sites or even from natural sites and caves and, and radiocarbon date them and you do enough of that you should find a, a horizon which represents more or less the earliest point of dispersal of rats in New Zealand. Unfortunately when that was initially done back in the 1990s by the um, radiocarbon lab in La Hutt they got it massively wrong and um, for reasons that are that are rather complex and were not known, to be fair to them, were not known for a while. But even when they were known, they were still adamant that their dates were right. They turned out to be massively wrong. And um, one of the ways of checking on this was to do another thing which didn't involve the difficulties of dating bone. Bone is a difficult material to date as opposed to things like charcoal or seeds or whatever. So um, my colleague, Janet Wilmshurst, uh, who works in paleoecology at... Um, in Lincoln, 
she started collecting rat-gnawed seeds. Rats, as you know, when they have annoying action with their front teeth like beavers, it's, it's just so characteristic you can't mistake it for anything else in the New Zealand situation where we had only the only ground mammals, terrestrial ground mammals, were, were small bats. So, um, and you can't mistake the two. So if you get the, from the bottom, if you, you dig down into swamps and you get right down to the bottom through and you're getting lots of seeds from forest trees to the earliest ones that are still rat-gnawed and then below them you'll have a lot that it'll, they'll be all un-gnawed and then you radiocarbon date those. Well, they did this project in a number of places in New Zealand and all their dates came out at about 1270, 1280 AD. Pollen profiles are another thing. If you look at the the pollen that's in these cores that they take out of swamps and you quantify the pollen belonging to different kinds of vegetation, you see that in New Zealand at around about 1200 to, well, about 1250 to 1350, there's a sudden decline in forest trees and it's accompanied by a great deal of charcoal. And what you're then getting is a big, um, this is particularly in the South Island, a big increase in tussock and um, bracken fern. So that, again, is a clear indication of the entry of people into the environment at that stage. And so is there any uh, firm conclusion in terms of uh, what size of population commenced here and, and how, what happened to it? How did it uh, develop? Was it, was it gradual? Was it, uh, can you enlighten us on that? Um, well, I'll try. I mean, for one thing, if you accept that the traditions are historical and then you ask yourself, well, how many canoes were there and um, what kind of crew would they be carrying? Um, the answer to the first is that canoes where we have named skippers and crew uh, as coming to New Zealand so we can fit them in, find them in Whakapapa or fit them into Whakapapa, there's somewhere between 12 and 20 migration canoes came to New Zealand. So more than the so-called seven canoes that um, were supposed to have come in, in the older school books that we, um, we all read. And you could multiply that by, let's say, 20 people to be conservative, 20 people in a canoe. Maori, like all Polynesians, travelled, and in most cases still travel as families. So men, women, children, maybe 20 times 12. You can do the maths on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but you're looking at several hundred. Uh, and, um, and then now there's been a, a, a nice confirmation of that from the genetics because um, genetic markers in DNA or, or Y chromosome, DNA is the female component, Y chromosome, the male or autosomal DNA, which occurs in, in both um, sexes, um, the markers in those have different frequencies. Some markers are extremely frequent. Some markers are very rare. And if you, you can work out statistically, well, how many people would you have to have on average for one of these rather rare markers on average to appear in the population? And it might be 500, it might be 1,000, it might be 10,000, or, or it could be much less. And so the geneticists have done this exercise and they've got um, genetic material from, from um, Maori bone and teeth and um, they've found some relatively rare genetic markers and they suggest that in both men and women there would have to be at least about two to three hundred of each arrive in New Zealand in that early period f to meet that statistic statistical expectation that those rarer genes existed as they do in the Maori genotype. So we're looking at quite a large population and I think we see that too when we look at the, the archaeological evidence because you find these sites like Wairo Bar, although by, it's by far the biggest and richest and most complex of them, nonetheless there are many other sites like that scattered all through New Zealand from uh, Westport, Kawatiri Mouth, Buller River Mouth, Papatawai, down in the Catlins, um, 
now recently you were saying uh, in Gisborne, Gisborne. Mm. Um, the other day uh, we were been away overseas for a few weeks and I didn't see it on the news but I looked it up that um, Richard Walter and the Otago team there have just been excavating a site near Gisborne or in Gisborne which has very much the same sort of material as occurs in Wairoabar and Shag River and all of these other sites a lot of moa bone very char characteristic shapes of fish hooks um, adzes that have uh, the back of the adz with a, with a um, bevel cut in it so you can fasten it onto a, onto a haft um, to very typical ornaments of the archaic period things like that you don't find later on like um, ornaments in the shape of a turtle which turtles do occasionally come to New Zealand but they're by no means common um, but we suspect that since people in, in Tahiti and, and um, Hawaii and Marquesas and so on were making exactly these same kinds of artefacts in places where turtles existed, this was a memory that came to New Zealand with the early settlers. So in the first hundred years or so, they were making some artefacts that looked like turtles. Um, and probably there are many other things that, that haven't occurred to me about... Uh, the archaeological material, all of which indicates where the, what the early sites look like and then when you do the radiocarbon dating on them, how old they are. And what we see is, is again, this horizon from 1280, probably, possibly a little bit earlier than that, but around about 1280 up to about 1350. All around New Zealand, people are living in sites. Now, that would suggest to me that um, there must have been a large population have come here early on, because we don't find earlier sites. I suspect there are one or two tiny sites somewhere where people were exploring just before they got to, just um, before they started building these villages. But what it suggests is that people are already spread right throughout New Zealand. <laughs> and I'd add to that one thing, at the same time, and I've worked a lot on the outlying islands of New Zealand, in fact I've found the earliest sites on, on most of them, um, they are of the same age and they have the same material in them. So on the Auckland Islands, south of New Zealand, again, about 1300 AD, people were, people were living there, only briefly, but they were. Um, the Chatham Islands, we don't have a good handle on that, but the latest evidence suggests, again, about that age. Um, Raoul Island and other islands in the Kermadex. Norfolk Island, again, and... Interestingly enough, people got to the east coast of Australia from Norfolk Island, Polynesians who had been in Norfolk Island, and we know they had been also in Raoul Island because they had obsidian, which is chemically analysed as coming from Raoul Island, and they had one piece of obsidian chemically characterised as coming from Mare Island in the Bay of Plenty. So these people, these were people who had had contact with New Zealand, may have been in New Zealand, come back up to Raoul Island sailed across 1,300 kilometres to Norfolk Island and then sailed from Norfolk Island 2,300 kilometres to New South Wales. Now so given those directions and given the base direction in terms of uh, origins coming from the yeah, east the time, to yeah. Yeah, very close to, yeah. Yeah, east to the west, yeah. uh, final, final issue really, in terms of voyaging and given the um, west-east trade wind situation, how do you cope with that? Um, with climate change, I think. Right. And let me just explain. It, this is a difficult topic, and it's one that, in which I argue a lot with my colleagues about, but um, I'll tell you what I think. They can tell you what they think. The, the historical evidence suggests that when... This is the historical evidence of early European um, voyages in the Pacific from about... 1500 through the 18th century, so up to Cook and, and later ones, suggests that there were two main kinds of vessels um, being used on long-distance voyaging in that period. One was a, was a canoe or a double canoe or an outrigger canoe which had a Latin sail, the kind of sail very similar to the sail you, you see in Arabic craft even today in the Indian Ocean. That got as far east as about Tonga, no further. In east of Tonga, in Tahiti, Hawaii, etc., you had a what's called an oceanic spritsail. It has a, a mast, and then it has another spar coming out, and then a s triangular sail between them. Both of those types of sails could sail partly into the wind, so they were able to cope with 
winds on the nose when they were trying to get some, to some place they could take backwards and forwards across the wind. Um, I've argued, and others have argued as well, that the oceanic spritzel was actually derived from the Latin, and the Latin didn't get into the Pacific until about 1500 AD. Therefore, the sail that must have been used at the time of Polynesian colonisation, East Polynesian colonisation, must have been something else. So what was it? Well, in New Zealand, we have what's called a double spritzel, and it doesn't have a fixed mast. There's no, there's no shrouds or stays holding it up. It just has two spars attached to the front end of the deck between the two double canoes, and they can move independently backwards and forwards to get some shape into the sail using running four stays and then sheets at the back for those of you who understand the, the sailing terminology. The, these canoes, everybody said, cannot sail to windward. In fact, they could barely sail across the wind. The best one that was recorded was in the Bay of Plenty and when it was sailing alongside the Endeavour for three or four hours. When it turned to go home, it just pulled down its sail, turned around and paddled back. So if you had technology that could only go downwind, then how did they get across, down through 3,000 kilometres of the, of the constant westerlies into New Zealand? Well, the answer is that in a relatively short period between about 1100 and 1300 AD, the winds in the Pacific switched so that in the um, subtropical and northern, and northern parts of the temperate zone, instead of being westerlies, they were easterlies. And they, what's more, as they came east, they were coming around the high-pressure systems, they turned into northeasterlies. So if you just sat on a boat in Rarotonga with a, your hand up in the air or a sail or something and just let it go, the wind would have taken you straight, straight to New Zealand, east and then northeast, and you would have landed somewhere in Northland or Bay Plenty or, or wherever. So um, I'm not saying that there weren't other kinds of sails. We can't be sure about that. But what I'm saying is you don't need to propose that they had this rather complex sailing technology in AD 1300 in order to get to New Zealand. Thank you, Ethel. And I think in time terms, we've reached the stage where yep. we've got to allow some time for <laughs> questions from uh, members of the audience. So, uh, yes, thank you. Um, it teaches us that you have to be very careful about how you excavate sites because actually they weren't found under the ash. It was presumed that they were found under the ash. They were found in a pit which had gone through the Kaharoa ash and then the bones were picked up. But, they, but when you're cutting down, when you're excavating down, stuff falls in. As you can imagine, you've got four walls to this one metre by one metre trench. And when those um, bones, when other bones from that site and from other sites which had produced bones dated to 2,000 years ago on the Tarkaka Hill and elsewhere, when new specimens from exactly the same place were dated by the same laboratory and by other laboratories, they came out at less than 700 years old. Any other questions? Thank you. The, um, the easterly bringing the boats down from the northeast. Um, uh, what about the, 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 the times we've been taught that um, Polynesians travelled back that way? Mm. It wasn't. It's a um, it's a probability thing. In other words, the easterlies were probably whereas before the westerlies were running maybe 80-90% of the time and then there were occasional bouts of easties. When it reversed, you had the same situation. So you had... Uh, uh, there's, there's one period, I think it's uh, tw uh, 1270 to 1280 when it was mainly westerlies. So there was one sort of short period when they were going the other way. And it would seem logical... Uh, the, the story of Coupe, I've doubted it at times, but it's so strong and... Um, it has such a wide currency of belief in it, and it fits so well with the idea of a large colonising population that somebody did get back and said, 
Now listen up, you guys. Out there, down there, there are these massive islands. Come back with me. Another question? Don't be fearful. <laughs> I was over there. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Um, oxygen isotope analysis of corals and stalagmites. So um, that tells you relative temperature, whether it's warmer or cooler. And because um, you, you have a heavy isotope, oxygen 18, and a lighter one, uh, oxygen 16 isotope. Um, and then you can radiocarbon date also the same. In, in a stalagmite, you know, you may have two or three hundred years, some corals, you get two or three hundred year record and you can mix and match these records like you do with, with um, wood um, rings and you can get a record and if you get that record for I, the paper that I wrote with the um, Australian, Australian climatologists, I think they had a hundred or 120 locations scattered all throughout the Pacific. When you've got the, the temperature records, then you can work out where the pressure systems are. And when you know at a particular time, and when you know where the pressure systems are, then you know which way around them the winds run. So, yes, thank you. Yes, yes, and no. Um, Moriori and Maori are both East Polynesian colonists who came at or about the same time from Tahiti and or other places like Rarotonga to New Zealand. We don't know whether they, the people who, and the Moriori are the group who live in the Chatham Islands. The idea that Moriori lived in, in New Zealand is another one of those misunderstandings from the early 20th century which ended up in our school books and you and me and everybody else got completely confused about this. There were no, no people living here until Maori got here and there were no people living in the Chatham Islands until people who then or subsequently called themselves Moriori got there. They're exactly the same, East Polynesian, same material culture, almost the same language. The nearest language in terms of its um, proximity by you know, looking at all the different bits of the language, grammar and everything else, is with Maori. So Moriori language looks to be a subset of the Maori language. So the, the best guess is that they were part of the people who came to New Zealand and then one group went off to the east and ended up in the Chathams. Yeah. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes, thank you. Uh, we don't know because all, we, all that we know about it is that there was a midden um, and a, a well-known Australian archaeologist called McCarthy, Fred, I think, Fred McCarthy, did some excavations in it somewhere just south of Newcastle in New South Wales um, back in the 1920s, about 1928. And um, he recovered this ads, which has been in the Australian Museum ever since. And um, it always looked East Polynesian. In fact, he said even then, 1929, when he published his paper, um, this looks like a Polynesian ads. And... Um, it's only in recent years that we've had the technology to do the chemistry of, of basalts to distinguish them um, more or less definitively to one source rather than another. And when that research was done on this ads, it turned out to be from the same basalts from which the very same looking ads were made on Norfolk Island. We've got time for one more. Any other questions? Someone up there? Right, thank um, you. Navigational skills were obviously extraordinary. Um, given that um, it hasn't been passed down in the generations, would it be an explanation that having got to Zero, they thought we would put that skill away? I, look, I don't think so. I think that when you're right in a sense to say they're extraordinary, but but, in a, but also they were relatively simple and they were the same as most people in the world had. It's, it's a bit of a myth that's sort of gaining ground that 
Polynesians and some of the world's finest, you know, pre-modern navigators and so on. They were good, but they were no better than Arabs or Norse or um, um, some of the Indian um, groups that travelled across the Indian Ocean, probably people from Indonesia who got across the Indian Ocean. They were using star paths, basically. They had no means of, of um, telling about longitude, but th you could use rising or zenith stars to determine, to, to keep you on an east-west course, basically. That's what it is. And... Um, then you use what's called dead reckoning to figure out how far away you are. You say, well, we're travelling at about four knots, so four knots times six days is, puts us this far away from our island. That's, that's what dead reckoning is. It's a rough and ready way, but, if you're, but um, there are other things, as you well know, about uh, navigation, about you know, finding birds at sea that, that nest on land, for example, or other evidence that land is somewhere in the proximity. So you can put a ring around an island of maybe 100 kilometres out, which once you get in it, you know that land is somewhere near there. Hmm. We could do one more, if... Uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> Um, I think I think some of our more recent work. Uh, I don't want to sound blasé about this, but and and often you don't find the things that you're looking for, and frequently you don't find anything that's sort of spectacular, like beautiful artifacts or whatever. But I think some of the most interesting work um, uh, that I've done is, has been on uh, islands that were thought possibly to have been occupied by um, Polynesians and sometimes you find that they were and sometimes that they find that they weren't and I think the work that we did on the Galapagos Islands where there'd been various papers written arguing that Polynesians had got to the Galapagos and then to from there to South America and then brought the Kumara back to Polynesia um, I always doubted everything about that story we went there in was it 2004 as in and um, we took an expedition there and we re-excavated these five sites which were said to be sites of Polynesian and or Amer Amerindian settlement. And what we found uh, was that everything on the site fitted the same pattern. So there was iron, there was glass, there were European ceramics, um, there were all sorts of things. And the way in which this, the, these things were distributed on the site Everything else, including the alleged Amerindian ceramics and so on, were in exactly the same pattern statistically. So either you had to believe that by some incredible coincidence when people settled on these five sites, they dropped their, their rubbish in precisely the same pattern over an area of about an acre in each case, each time, or everything had come at once sometime after the arrival of Europeans. Galapagos were found in 1509 by the Bishop of Panama. <coughs> and um, that's the most likely explanation, is that people were carrying... Because all sorts of stuff was being carried backwards and forwards across the Pacific by the Spanish galleons, including a lot of stuff in, Spanish pot in South American pottery. In fact, one of the big sites there <coughs> has huge amount of pottery on it. And, they're all, and it turns out that they are all jars which contained marmalade, which were taken from a ship by, by British buccaneers. They captured the ship hoping they'd get gold, gold and silver and jewels and so on. And all they got was about 200 tonnes of marmalade. So, so they carted these huge jars of it back to the Galapagos Island. And I don't know what they did with it. Maybe they ate it all at once or whatever. But, and all the remains of the jars are still there. Hmm. Thank you, Ethel. And I think on that note, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll wind up. And I'd like to thank, on behalf of everybody, I think, Dog Point uh, Winery in particular for uh, today, and, uh, but just ev all of the sponsors who've uh, sponsored a, a wonderful festival. And Ethel, uh, uh, your experiences and your knowledge is uh, so vast that it's been uh, I think surely an eye-opener to all of us and uh, I would hope would encourage you to read a book uh, that uh, will fill out 
a lot of those questions that uh, you probably still have in your mind and need answering. And so I'd like you to uh, show your appreciation to Apple. Thank you. Kia ora, Mark. Kia ora, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing.